Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the fish Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio On the Black Talk Radio Network A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate On the issue of 21st century legalized slavery Hosted by social activists and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is our February 28, 2018 broadcast in our sixth season, the last day of National Black History Month. Come back next week for more Black History right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're either reporting it, living it, or making it every week. On and near this day in history, Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American woman to publish a book, died at the age of 31 on February 28, 1784. Also, Florida teenager Trayvon Martin was shot and killed on February 26, 2012. Many activists began their careers that day. They began to live that day, as Dr. King has said. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is, of course, Phyllis Wheatley anti-slavery poet born in 1753 in Senegal, Africa, kidnapped by slavers at seven and died at 31 impoverished in Boston, February 28, 1784. 
there's some dispute on the day of the death, so let's just go with what we have. It is said that through her poetry, Wheatley opened the eyes of people to the intelligence of African-American race and thus had an everlasting impact on the abolitionist movement in years to come. I have some opinions about that, but we'll save it for later. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we remember the first recorded instance of African slaves and European indentured servants standing together for justice against the ruling elite. It led to one of the first recorded instances of the slavers using racism as a device for social control, the Gloucester County Conspiracy of September 1st, 1663. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Malcolm Alexander, who wrongfully served 38 years for rape that DNA evidence proves he did not commit. In January of 2018, a district court judge dismissed the indictment and ordered the release. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to 13th Amendment slavery from the perspective of slavery abolitionists. We've got a couple of monumental stories tonight, starting with the first ever report on the extent and impact of cooperation between courts and private debt collection companies nationwide. The American Civil Liberties Union found courts in 26 states and Puerto Rico in which judges issued arrest warrants for alleged debtors at the request of private debt collectors. Then there is the Supreme Court ruling that immigrants can be held by U.S. immigration officials indefinitely without receiving bond hearings. We told you this was coming. Slavers aren't in the business of releasing people. There's all that and so much more, so let's get started. You got a question or a comment? Call in at 704-802-5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? How you doing, brother? Hey, I'm doing the best I can behind these enemy lines of USA Inc. Inc. Max, so you know how it go. Um, just glad to be back on the airways. And as you mentioned, we do have a couple of what should be eye-opening stories for the majority of, of people who come across this story. But of course, it's not really a surprising story to new abolitionists and those who regularly listen to new abolitionist radio and have been doing so in the past six years. As they know, we we bring terrible stories every week. And it, I mean, it can be a di- bit depressing at times to always talk about all this bad stuff that's going on, but people need to know about it. And I'm just wondering, what story do people need to hear before they start taking slavery in the United States, which emanates globally, uh, start taking it serious, Max. I, I don't know what's going to to happen to move the needle on this issue to where we can reach critical mass. In, in the previous occasions when slavery was faced with extinction due to the work of the abolitionists, it was because they took their message globally and, uh, and eventually much of the world started denouncing those who were practicing this immoral uh institution of slavery the same thing happened during the convict leasing era in the late 1920s when that cave-in was the reason that they stopped convict leasing in Alabama because 128 people, men, women, and children had to freaking die first and the world saw it 
uh, they've been doing it for years, for decades, but not until the horrors of it became visible did they begin to stop. But I so mean, I suspect. Go ahead. Well, I'm I'm saying, Max, everything is visible. I mean, we get snuff films from the slave catchers or slave catchers murdering people. Every once in a while, we'll get some video smuggled out the prison plantation. But, I mean, and then we have the body cams uh, and dash cams of these slave catchers themselves. So, I mean, the horrors are playing out on social media every day. And I know part of it is confusion as... I think we have addressed it on this program before about the incorrectness of calling something mass incarceration because it doesn't really have the same impact or impression on a person's mind when you tell them it's slavery. And then you point to the legal document that says it's slavery. It's not my interpretation of it. It doesn't take much interpretation of the 13th Amendment when it says involuntary uh, servitude and slavery as punishment for crime. How much more interpretation do you need? So Max is playing out in front of us every day. We know those that are connected to us on social media, they definitely are seeing the stories from us, but I'm still just not seeing the level of urgency that I would expect to see when we are confronted with blatant examples like the NCAA being one of those stories saying, hey, we don't have to pay student athletes because the 13th Amendment says that slavery is legal. And so we're just going to apply that to our student athletes in the same fashion that the federal and state governments is applying it to uh, prisoners in prisons. So I'm just not seeing it, Max. You know, I would have expected by after six days of that story being reported by Sean King uh, for The Intercept that at least I'll be hearing something or seeing something on social media um, on even some of the alternative news media uh, from the National Action Network, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Rainbow Coalition. Hell, they flew all the way to an uh, island off the coast of Africa, the continent of Africa, to point out that that country was practicing slavery. Why are they now silent on the NCAA saying in federal court papers that, hey, we, we're practicing a form of slavery and we shouldn't have to pay these student athletes? I, I'm not seeing it from Representative Con John Lewis, who I tweeted this story to. I'm not, you know, K Kamala Harris, and you know how I feel about her as, a, as the former Attorney General of California, but I'm not hearing her comment on it. Senator Boyd Cooker, uh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Did I say? Corey Booker. Corey, I said Cooker, right? Uh, I'm not seeing Cory Booker, the so-called, you know, criminal justice reformist talking about Scotty. it. Nobody, Max. Scotty, you can't expect to see them to do it. The people that you got to expect to see them do it is the, like, I didn't get a chance to tell you before, but two weeks ago, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, with uh, some of the most prominent political prisoner activists in the country. The Move Nine survivors, Pam Africa was there. Uh, it was just it was a bunch of us, including the family members of the brother out in Texas, who is now the subject of the FBI's uh, first case regarding black identity extremism. So we were all there powwowing and talking about what it is we need to do. And trust me, when I tell you, they are all on board with the abolitionist movement. Those are the people who are really going to push the issue even further because they're out there in the streets doing it. We can't expect these corporate-controlled entities to do this for us. Think about it like this. 
The dynasties of both Rupert Murdoch and Ted Turner touch 5 billion people every single day. And that's what we're up against. Well, Max, I, I'm going to disagree with you on, on a point. I do expect politicians, elected representatives to be talking about it and to do something about it. And I put it on us to make them talk about it, to push it in front of them. So that that's that's what I'm talking about. Um, yes, I, I yeah, see what you mean. I, mean doing, I agree to a large extent because I've been here with you supporting politicians. I'm going to do it tonight. I'm going to support a politician. But historically speaking, I'm going to stick with the grassroots movement. Yeah, but Max, happen. let me finish. Let me finish. Historically speaking, the abolitionist movement did start off as a grassroots movement as it gained steam, membership, resources, notoriety. They had a flat effect on the political system. Okay? We know that the Republican Party was founded by abolitionists. We know that abolitionists drove the issue of ending slavery in this country. And 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 much to the movement's demise, they fell for the lies of Abraham Lincoln. But again, he got the nomination because of the abolitionist vote. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change in terms of slavery being legal. Nothing's going to change in that Constitution if it don't happen through Congress in, in the political system. That's just a fact. Yeah. And yeah. that's what. And, and so that, that's why I'm saying, it, Max. And it's not just the politicians, but I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about everybody, the grassroots. I'm not seeing them making this story go viral on social media. I'm not seeing this lawsuit coming out of their mouths too much. You know what I'm saying? And it's been six days. And I think they might still be talking about the Black Panther movie or talking about something else. Maybe they still talking about Monique's Netflix boycott. I don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they're talking about, you know, the next award that some musician is going to get. They're talking about everything, Max, except for this very monumental story where you have a major uh, corporation, even though it's nonprofit, the NCAA, admitting that slavery was never abolished and we're practicing it against student athletes. It's crazy, Max. You know, when I think of it, I, I remember the uh, the speech, everyone knows something of slavery, but no one has a full knowledge of it but the slave. And uh, the speech was by abolitionist Alexander Crummel. Um, really point out that, yeah, you know, if you're on the outside, you can't see these things or you don't understand these things. And I, I'm often trying to be involved directly with the people who are suffering the most from this directly. Like Harriet said, her biggest problem was she couldn't convince them that they were still slaves. So I get out there and I, I put the conversation on the table so they understand this, the uh, change of perspective that is needed. I've had to address some lifelong artists, I mean, lifelong activists who have been working in prison industries and justice uh, for decades and tell them, look, it's time to change your mind because literally you are endorsing a crime against humanity by agreeing that it is legal. And you need to change that perspective. What's being done to you is illegal. It's slavery. It's human trafficking. And they can be prosecuted for it. For it and you're firsthand witnesses enduring it. 
And, and uh, but Max, but Max, slavery is legal, yes, though. Said Max. yes, they're with us. Slavery is legal, though. It is legal. Uh, you can yes. kind of confuse me there. <laughs> I mean, what's happening to them is slavery and it's legal. And now we yes. have a body, uh, a very powerful body worth billions of dollars that's saying that not only is it legal, but we won't apply it outside of people convicted of crimes. We won't apply right. it to college students. And they even do it before the 13th Amendment takes application through jail programs that we have been talking about over the past few weeks where they send the people to the chicken farms. So you don't even get the chance to be convicted of a crime. You just go straight to the chicken farm. I think that there is suppression among the corporate media of this story. Why do I think that? Because these very same corporations are the ones that's going to make a whole bunch of money broadcasting March Madness NCAA basketball tournament. So they stand to lose money. You know? So I don't expect them, but the people that I hey, named Scott, er earlier... If you don't mind, before you continue... Could you just go ahead and actually and just take that story and tell us what's going on? Because everybody doesn't know. I've listened to your three videos, but I think the people listening should hear the story. And you really have broken it down and, and observed it from with detail. So if you don't mind, just tell them what we're talking about and where you're at with it. Okay. Um, six days ago, Sean King, uh, who who is most known for his writing with the New York Daily News and writing about issues of police violence and murder and and criminal justice issues. Um, but he also writes for the nonprofit news outlet, The Intercept. And so six days ago, he published an article saying that the NCAA has responded to a lawsuit uh, with a motion to dismiss against a, a lawsuit that was filed by Lawrence Poppy Livers. He is a former uh, college student athlete. And in his lawsuit, one of the things that he asserts, he asserts that the NCAA should, in the very least, be paying his scholarship athlete students work study wages, you know, which again probably would meet federal minimum wage. And saying that in the very least, for all the work that they put in in that gym, on that football field, in that weight room, in the film study room, this is a job. And that these athletes, in the very least, should be paid as work-study students. And so the NCAA, in response to the lawsuit, in a motion to dismiss, what a motion to dismiss is saying to the courts that we want you to dismiss this lawsuit against us based on this argument. What is the argument that they're presenting to the courts on why they should dismiss the lawsuit? They are saying that the 13th Amendment allows for prison slave labor involuntary servitude they cite the case i forget the name of the case it might have been van skeeky against pete versus peters peters who would be the head of the uh correctional um department that was being sued by van skeeky who was a prisoner uh in illinois and so they're saying they're citing that case where Van Skeeky, and I might be saying his name incorrectly, but they're citing that case and saying, look, he sued and saying that the Department of Correction of Illinois should pay him at least federal minimum wage for the work that he's doing as a prisoner. He's in prison. The Supreme Court said that the 13th Amendment, excuse me, not the Supreme Court, the courts ruled 
in that case that the 13th Amendment allows for involuntary servitude and slavery, meaning that we can put you to work and we don't have to pay you if you've been convicted of a crime. So obviously the prisoner lost. He lost because the slavery and involuntary servitude is legal per the 13th Amendment. If you've been convicted of a crime, if you've been given that criminal status, that felony slave status or state slave status. And and so they're saying that we're going to apply this precedent or this court ruling saying that ruled against this prisoner. We're going to use that to justify us not paying student athletes. We're going to say that slavery was never abolished. Neither was involuntary servitude, and we we should be allowed under the Thirteenth Amendment to practice slavery against these student athletes and not pay them a dime. Obviously, I think it's a legal mistake because obviously these student athletes have not been convicted of the crime. So why their law firm decided to try to pull the Thirteenth Amendment out there behind is behind is is a I'm at a loss for words on that logic because obviously you can't say that a person with a college student athlete status is the same as a person with a a criminal conviction status in this country under the 13th Amendment. So that's what the that's what the story is all about. So you got this major college body that makes billions of dollars annually off the backs of the of these young men and women who play college sports, and the NCAA is telling the courts that basically we're practicing slavery and we ought to be allowed to under the Thirteenth Amendment. So that's the story in a nutshell, and why I my mind is blown that we're not seeing um, this story being featured. Uh, all across the social media sphere. And I'm not talking about corporations. I'm talking about you, the people, okay? And But then when it comes to these politicians, that's their job. And I'm going to keep bugging the heck out of them until they address this. So that's the yes. story, Max. Thank you, Scotty. Uh, got an echo going on. Keep talking, it'll go right. away. Oh, Okay. <laughs> My bad. So, yeah, uh, that's pretty amazing to think. And it's also a lot to unpack, too, you know? Like, you and I and the people who have been listening to us for months or years now uh, and the groups that have been influenced by what we've been talking about here, we, we understand that from a different perspective. That's that abolitionist perspective. We're already looking at this as slavery. But when faced with the potential of it being real slavery to those who have lived in near the river denial, uh, I can imagine that there's a lot of unpacking that they don't want to do. A lot of unpacking. I mean, where do you start now? You see this case out of nowhere, where do you start from? So I'm not excusing none of the media, but I'm saying it is a lot to unpack. That's for sure. And it opens up a doorway that's not going to close. Once the people start understanding that this is real slavery, legalized, just like it was in the 1800s. You mentioned earlier, uh, critical mass, that's what would happen. This is why I'm so happy to know that uh, the human rights networks uh, have told us that they're certain, and I'm going to hold them to it. That's why I keep saying it, so we could hold them feet to the fire to get it done. 
that we'll have the first congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment this year. I, I can't wait for that, Scotty. I mean, good Lord. I expect you and me would both testify before Congress. See, that's what I'm talking <laughs> about, Max. Now, I'm not calling out any groups specifically, but that's why I mentioned, mentioned I might as well throw in the NCAA, excuse me, the what is it? The in the National Association for Colored People, the NAACP. I'm gonna throw them in there too. National Action Network, in, the Urban League, any of these organizations that talk about civil rights. I even throw in the Southern Poverty Law Center, and you got the and and I will also throw in there the U.S. Human Rights Network. All of these organizations that work on human rights issues, quote unquote, civil rights issue as well, uh, that say that that's their mission to be concerned about that, then I would expect them to use this case, this lawsuit, and more importantly, the response by the NCAA saying we can practice slavery inciting the 13th Amendment. I would think that you could use that as a propaganda tool. To, to highlight that story, piggyback off of it and say, see, we really do need to have congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment. Now we got these fools that want to apply it to people who not who have not been convicted of crimes. That's what I mean. In the game of proper, not a game, but in, in the propaganda wars, I would expect these organizations to be wielding this story like a weapon while it's still current. Amen to that. And at the same time, I've got to celebrate the work of the people who are directly affected by this. I've got to celebrate it. Like what they've been doing with Operation Push out in Florida, for instance. I mean, they risked their lives for this. And some of them suffered torture and abuse behind this out in Florida, uh, where they are simply stopping working for free. It's, uh, uh, it's amazing. So you, i got to give them credit uh, for doing things like that. But uh, at the same time, I also, uh, last just yesterday, for example, I had a friend call me from Louisiana, decarcerate Louisiana. He's actually behind bars and has faced death row before. But be- from behind bars in Louisiana, they are organizing. They're organizing media campaigns. They're uh, putting out data and information. Uh, they're doing studies. and essay- I mean, they're from the inside, and they're all abolitionists. These are things that are really coming together and coalescing to change the entire game, the whole in perspective of what's happening in America. And that's why I said earlier, I try to focus on the people who are directly affected by it because they are the ones who understand it enough to be passionate about it because it happens to well, them. Well, well, Max, uh, let, me, let, let me respond to that right quick. It affects all of us. It affects my grandchildren just as it affects anybody else. We're all infected by this. Okay, are some of us under the lash of the whip right now or under the uh, baton of the CEO and being, you know, starved and thrown into solitary confinement? Of course, of course. But this impacts all of us. It impacts generations not yet named, as they would say. Slavery is a threat. Like Martin Luther King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Slavery anywhere is a threat of enslavement for us all. So I'm saying we're all impacted by this. I ain't never spent one day inside a prison where I was a prisoner. 
But I I would challenge anyone to find somebody as passionate or more passionate about this issue than I am. Well, I don't have to be a slave to be passionate for, about this issue. All I have to know is slavery is evil, it's happening, and I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to my children, my grandchildren, or my generations not not yet born. This impacts us all. We're all paying taxes, Max. We're all under threat 24-7 of being rounded up by slave catchers and thrown into prison. It affects all of us, not just some of us. It affects this entire society, this entire planet, I would say. You should come to the next meeting that we have with the the people who are advocates and explain that to them. Because when I sat there uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, with the family of Mumia and Pam Africa and all of these people out there who are fighting for the rights of political prisoners, not just in America, but all over the globe, um, and, you know, I was trying to impress upon them that as loud as you're shouting about this one person or these five people or these 12 people or these 24 people, there are 24 million people going through it this, this every single day. And the shout is free them all. We hear it all the time, free them all. And does free them all include the innocent people who are being pushed into prisons because of debtors' prisons? Does it include the Sandra Blands? I mean, does it is it just limited to political prisoners, or do you literally want to free them all? And if you want to free them all, then you got to end slavery. Well, many many of those political prisoners do speak out on the issue of 21st century slavery and human Mumia trafficking. Mumia called in at the meeting at, at the march. Remember? Yes, he called yes, in I was at the Millions of Prisoners march. Uh, you made yeah. it happen, as a matter of so fact. So I do they understand. I do understand the separation. Our political prisoners are dying. They're old men and women now. It's mostly men, but they're old men. They're dying, um, and they have. You know, they're in a totally different situation and under a different status than, let's say, somebody who was was uh, framed for possessing some marijuana or some crack or or some heroin or or even if they really did possess that heroin. That's a different status than somebody that's a, a political prisoner. A political prisoner is a prisoner because of of them doing exactly what you do now, Max. When you right. go go right. around speaking, when you confront politicians, when you participate in panels, when you urge people to take action on they were engaged in the very same thing, Max, and and, and you and I and others like us who are very active and visible and we're not hiding behind pseudonyms on the internet and and people know our names, know what we look like, even may know where we live. You know, we're at threats of being made political prisoners every day, so I do understand the need to put a, a, a special spotlight on them. But those same political prisoners, some of which I've interviewed over the years, are some of the biggest advocates for, against what they call mass incarceration, but I think many of them as Robert King, who was one of the keynote speakers and and was one of the Angola Three political prisoners, said at the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, he recognized that what is happening isn't mass incarceration. This is a continuation of slavery, and so so and that's a catalyst yeah. right there, Scotty. Yeah, that is a catalyst moment. I I went on stage right before him. He came up right after me, and to hear him say that, let me know that was a catalyst moment. And since then. 
I, as I said, decarcerate Louisiana, decarcerate the Garden State, decarcerate all over the country, including the uh, the cure organizations have declared themselves abolitionist organizations. The IWOC is an abolitionist organization. The international the uh, international workers of the World Union is an abolitionist organization. So those grassroots organizations are going to be the ones that really bring this thing to the forefront. Because remember, even Obama, he has spoken about slavery or prisons and police brutality more than any other president that I could have ever seen. He was the first one to visit an actual prison, right? So even with that, he did, it still didn't bring the light what these grassroots organizations are really pushing out there, but the only reason he did it was because he was under pressure. He never even spoke about mass incarceration or any of that until the 2012 State of the Union address. And again, it was because of pressure. They knew all of this all along. You and I both know they knew it. Clinton knew it. Uh, the uh, All of the presidents uh, living, Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton was part of the GEO Group's launch with their uh, initial public offering. And uh, Obama never mentioned a bad word about for-profit prisons. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. So they don't do these things because they want to unless we bring them in like that, like we have done. We brought in abolitionist candidates and we have mentored and we have uh, provided them with the information and uh, the tools that they've needed to be able to present their case and they've done it wonderfully. That's some historical stuff right there. Like I said in the intro, we're making history. You ain't, Nobody's never seen anything like this before happening. And it's really just gaining momentum now. But it's not enough, and that's my frustration. It's not enough. Not to take away from the hard work that people have been have put in, because without this movement, there'd have never been no Netflix uh, documentary called The 13th. There would have been no push to abolish private prisons. So not taking that away from the hard work it, you know, that we put in, but those things... However close we came to abolishing private prisons still exists. And they're stronger than ever. And they're going to be even get even richer as it relates to your other story about, you know, immigrants, the Supreme Court ruling that immigrants can be uh, detained indefinitely. Okay, uh, people, please look up the word indefinite. If you don't know the definition of that word, indefinite detention, put those two words together. So we're talking immigrants, we're talking private prisons. So not to take away any of the pressure that the grassroots has brought to bear and to push these issues to the forefront, we still have not abolished any of these institutions or, or, or what have you. And I say we still have yet to reach the critical mass that we need. When I say That's, critical, That's it right there. Yeah, I, when why. I say critical mass... I'm not talking about all 200 or 300 million people in the United States being active in, uh, uh, abolitionists. I'm talking about maybe 5 million, just 5 million. And I'm not talking about casual abolitionists. I'm talking about active abolitionists where they live, breathe, breathe and eat the abolitionist movie uh, movement and they won't rest until slavery's been abolished. Yes, well, just to back up just a second, I am happy that the political prisoners in this country and potentially overseas as well 
have decided that the use of the 13th Amendment and slavery, you know, looking at this as a crime against humanity, is a, a very positive uh, chance for them to gain their freedom once again. Like, instead of just on an individual basis, while they can still do that, collectively working on this goal could literally free them all. And I think they realize that, and a lot of them have been speaking of it in that way. So, yeah, indeed, man. All right, Scotty. So, yeah, we're expecting a couple calls today. Uh, Spirit, one of my mentees, uh, sent a student my way who's uh, looking to ask you and I some questions. I think he's doing a, uh, a paper for school on mass incarceration. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think also uh, our brother Chris Irvington out in Baltimore is running for office again. Uh, and we do yeah, speaking about, you know, abolitionists. He's running for office. But 41st District in Baltimore, Scotty? Was yeah, saying? Chris Irving. Sound like you said yes, Irving. Chris Irving. Yeah, Ir- Ir- Irving. So I just want to let people know if they have any questions or comments or if you are one of the uh, scheduled speakers to join us tonight, give us a call at 704-802-5056. That is 704-802-5056. You hit star star to unmute yourself and we'll bring you into the conversation. Just always Watch your background noise. Try to call in from a quiet place. Well, I guess until we get our callers, I can start with our first story. Uh, I want to get right into the ACLU because, uh, like you said about the NCAA, this is just as big a bombshell. It really should be out there all over. Everybody should be talking about it. We've been monitoring what the ACLU has been doing. And remember last year in 2017, uh, I believe it was June, We talked about how they had uh, discovered these debtor prisons that were happening in Lexington County in South Carolina. It was at the moment, I was about three miles away from where it was happening. So they uncovered that. And then just recently, the biggest bombshell is they found the first ever national report on widespread court practices that coerce payments from people in debt without due process. I'm going to read some of the story to you, and then uh, you and I, of course, will provide our own uh, content to it. Let me start here. February 21st, 2018, New York. In the first ever report on the extent and impact of cooperation between courts and the private debt collection industry nationwide, the American Civil Liberties Union found courts in 26 states in Puerto Rico in which judges issued arrest warrants for alleged debtors at the request of private debt collectors. This practice violates the many state and federal laws, as well as international human rights standards that prohibit the jailing of debtors. It worsens their financial struggles by subjecting them to court appearances, arrest warrants that appear on background checks, and jail time that interfere with their wages, their jobs, their ability to find housing and more. The private debt collection industry uses prosecutors and judges as weapons against millions of Americans who can't afford to pay their bills, said Jennifer Turner, author of A Pound of Flesh, The Criminalization of Private Debt, and principal human rights researcher at the ACLU. Consumers have little chance of justice when our courts take the debt collector's side in almost every case, even to the point of ordering people jailed until they pay up. An estimated one in three adults in the United States has a debt that has been turned over to a private collection company. According to the Urban Institute, 
more than 6,000 of these companies operate in the U.S. At the bidding of the private debt collection industry, courts issue tens of thousands of arrest warrants every year when people don't appear in court to deal with unpaid civil debt judgments. They had a warrant for my arrest, and I asked him for what? He didn't say what it was for, he said. He'll tell you later, recall Tracy Mosey of the Dickinson, Texas, two armed U.S. Marshals had entered her bedroom in 2014 to arrest her for failing to appear in court over a $1,500 federal student loan she took out in 1986 to pay for her driving truck driving school. The loan had grown to more than $13,000 with interest and fees, an amount Mosey can't afford because she is unemployed and subsists on disability benefits. She has a prosthetic leg that she wasn't wearing, but the marshal shackled her, shackled her feet and waist after she put it on. She was jailed overnight. I'm scared someone is going to come to my door and get me again. A Pound of Flesh includes dozens of stories of people who, like Mosey, have been jailed or threatened with jail by the debt collection industry with help from prosecutors and judges, including a mother of three in Indiana was jailed for missing hearings over medical bills for her cancer treatment. She was physically unable to climb the stairs to the women's section of the jail, so she was held in a men's mental health instant unit instead. A Georgia woman was arrested while caring for her terminally ill mother. A debt collection company had bought a six-year-old rental debt her landlord claimed she owed after evicting her from her trailing home. She was jailed overnight. Her mother died two days later. And they've got about a, three or four more stories like this throughout here, and there's quite a bit more to read about this. This is huge. Basically, they are telling you that the judges now, you remember we used to get the calls from the debt collectors, hi, uh, Scott Reed, uh, you are um, from the such and such debt collection and you owe, well now that's the prosecutor doing that. And if you don't pay, you go to jail until you do pay. And if you can't pay, your mama better pay or your sister better pay or your neighbor better pay or you better get a damn GoFundMe because somebody got to pay. Yeah, this is unconstitutional. I'm surprised that um, the ACLU is not raising constitutional issues because as we have discussed before that um you know debtors prisons have been ruled unconstitutional and outlawed but again we live in the land of lawlessness and they do what the heck they want to but that would be my um my response if i was an attorney working for the aclu i would be charging constitutional violations unless you know i'm incorrect about uh, debtors' prisons being outlawed, so it seems like to me that these uh, debt collection companies have successfully lobbied judges and prosecutors to 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 turn the jails into you know debtors' prisons. Right, they, they're working for freaking private companies issuing out arrest warrants that are in turn executed by SWAT teams, police departments who are all working at the bidding of private corporations who just want to get their pound of flesh. Well, let me say this, Max, as, as a, um, people ain't got to listen to me, but listen. You get a summons to go to court, just go to court. Please go to court and, and settle this in court. Don't think that you can just ignore 
these uh, uh, appearance tickets to appear in court, and it's just going to go away because it's not. They're going to send slave catchers to your door. They're going <laughs> to hunt you down. So I, I just think it's better to confront it while I still got my freedom um, as opposed to making them come to get me because we've seen when they come to get you how that can turn out. So Because I'm noticing that's very common in these stories that they're sharing that people were not going um, you know, to these hearings and whatnot. And I know a lot of people do that. I've done it myself in the past. Oh, I got a court date coming up. Oh, I missed it. No big deal. You know, and then next thing you know, I'm out here driving. I get pulled over and I'm going to jail because I'm, you know, failed to appear on another traffic violation. That has happened to me. And so I'm just speaking. I'm not blaming anybody for being. I'm just saying this system is very serious about its slavery and it's very serious about its money. And and as an individual, I want to see you survive this system until we can abolish it. So, you know, I would advise people, show up to court. Max, I think we got a caller, You're one of your callers on the line. I'm hearing a lot of right. background noise, so I'm assuming that's them. Uh, yeah, I, can you guys hear me? Yes. Can, is this Steve? Is it Steve? Yeah, this is Steven, yeah. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Uh, Spirit told me you would be calling in, man, and uh, he yeah. told you, I think he said, uh, you better talk to the masters. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we've been studying this subject for a long time in ways that few have ever even looked at, let alone studied, so uh, we probably can answer a few questions for you, hopefully. Uh, what's up, yeah. and what are you trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, I appreciate it, and um, I have a speech that I'm doing for my speech class is an informative speech and I chose this is the topic of mass incarceration and I'm just trying to uh, get some help on like um, like what would be like some really key points that I should cover in this um, speech and it can't be like a persuasive speech I can't like persuade anybody to try to like think a certain way or anything I just have to like simply kind of like state the facts and stuff like that so I'm trying to figure out like like three main points that I could really um, like hit home with the speech. Uh, I, I would. What's your name again, young man? Uh, Stephen Thomas. All right, Stephen. I would say start with mass incarceration, and we don't like to use that term um, that was popularized by Michelle Alexander's book because mass incarceration implies that the masses of people I would some people would think a majority of the people are in prison or being incarcerated the majority of the people are not although the majority of the people have been through the system in one form or fashion but we feel why call it mass incarceration when the original name for it is slavery and I would start with the 13th Amendment. You said this can't be, you can't convince, you know, you're not making a speech like a politician would to convince somebody over to my argument. You just want to spit the facts. So st start with what they might recognize as the beginning of mass incarceration, which is a continuation of slavery, and start with the 13th Amendment. Say what the 13th Amendment says, then show um, all throughout the years following how that gave rise to black codes, which meant that a lot of black people were being arrested and put in jails and prison over trivial things and how that manifests and continues today. 
Uh, I hope I'm being clear and you understand uh, what I'm trying to lay out. For yeah, you. I'm, I'm right now. Pretty, almost everything you're saying right now, yeah, I care everything. But that's, that is Scotty. That's, that's where I would start. Yes, indeed, indeed. Right. I, I want to add to that. Of course, um, I would also say start with the Thirteenth Amendment, the direct connection uh, with. Uh, the exception clause for prisoners and the number of prisoners we have world uh, nationwide right now. So I would start with that. I would also include the reasons that this exists as it does today, which is violations of the Fourth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. But Max, he can't eighth. do that. He can't. It's not that type of speech. He can't persuade. This is not a speech that he's given to persuade somebody. This is, I wouldn't actually call it a speech. It's more like a lecture. And he's given a lecture just laying out the facts. Yeah, that's what I thought I was doing. Yeah, um, when you say the reasons why, that's like arguing to to say that, hey, I'm trying to convince you that this actually exists. I don't know. Maybe I'm misunderstanding you. Maybe he understands you. I think that was good. I I'm let me finish, and then everybody can tell me whether they understand me or not. All right? Yeah. So the Fourth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, and the Eighth Amendment are the core drivers behind the numbers, and they tell you exactly what that right protects you from, and those things are being exploited every day, all day long. Fourth Amendment through things like stop and search uh, and uh, these laws along that line, and uh, of course, asset seizure in the Fourth Amendment, and then the Sixth Amendment with your right to a trial, which is being denied because 95% of all trials end in a plea bargain. So that means that the Sixth Amendment really don't exist. And then the Eighth Amendment, which is the cruel and unusual punishment, as well as extent, uh, ex uh, bail that you can't afford or uh, fees that you can't afford. These things have been passed. They, they, they're being violated all day, every day, all across America. And that really drives mass incarceration. So it is just the facts. This is the Constitution. This is what the protection are, is uh, that it provides. And these things are being violated and I, I really can't find I, I can't imagine anybody trying to de deny that those things are being violated I can see them uh, not mentioning it ignoring it like Kamala Harris does when she talks about bail reform but never mentions the Eighth Amendment but uh, those things can put it all together yeah and see, then this is this is where I'm disagreeing thing? this is where this is where I shouldn't say disagreement this is my bone of contention that those are not drivers, those are tools. The driver of, of slavery is profit. That's what's driving it, the greed, the profit motive. These violations of law are just what they're doing to make it to make prison slavery happen, to keep the prison plantation full. Okay, so the, what you're saying is they're violating, they're breaking the law, they're violating the Constitution in order to fill up mass incarcerations, or that's what's driving it. No, I, 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 I would disagree with that, Max, and say that what's driving it is the greed for profiting off of human bodies. That's what's driving it. Those other things are just simply the tools that they're using to, to turn people into slaves. And, and uh, 
Yeah. The last thing a little bit. Say say again, Steve. I said uh, I could include both of those points. I was actually um I could talk about uh the amendment and um what you just said as well. Right, the the fourth, sixth and eighth amendment included. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing, which kind of brings it all together, is convict leasing. Uh, convict leasing was a period of time where we talked about earlier in the program where people were uh, arrested on the most mundane of things. Yeah, that, these, was uh, night, that was doing the black codes. That was doing the black codes, right. yeah. Yeah. That uh, you said so Congress leasing? Convict. Convict, convict um, leasing. It went right. on allegedly all the way up to 1928. And it started in the, uh, I believe it was 1870. <laughs> and it went on. Actually, it started long before that, but like. And it never when they stopped. Either. On it, historically. It never 66. stopped, Max. When, you yeah, know? they went all the way back to 1777 and before, but allegedly 1866 to 1928 was the period that convict leasing uh, was in its, I guess, heyday. But it never ended when you have prisoners, like, for example, when you had that big oil spill down there in the Gulf of Mexico, and you had prisoners, I believe from Alabama, it might have been some from all of those Gulf states, were out there cleaning up that sludge. Those were prisoners. What is that if not convict leasing? You know what I'm saying? You leasing it out to the municipalities. You, In fact, BP was running that cleanup. And those prisoners, you know, that whole operation was being run by British Petroleum. And so they lease prisoners out all the time. They may not call it leasing, but the but but the um but the practice is still in effect. Hey Stephen, uh was there anything else that we could add to that? And hopefully uh you got what you needed or at least some of what you needed out of it. Yeah, I actually wrote down a lot. I was just trying down through with everything. The 13th Amendment is the top of the list, though. Both of right. us certainly agree on that. If you start with that, the 47 words of the 13th Amendment, it really explains it all regarding what's happening with mass incarceration, as you called it, which we call modern-day slavery. So should I try to like steer away from the term mass incarceration and just say slavery? I would appreciate it, but you have got to understand that it is yourself first. Because if you get up there and you try to explain something you don't understand, then you might have a problem. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. what you I would suggest if you're doing a whole speech, do your research. Uh, Maybe listen to a couple of these programs, follow through on the amendments and convict leasing and the 13th that we talked about. I can tell you right now, in the first part of the amendment, 14 Mm -hmm. uh, words are dedicated to the exception clause itself. (laughs) 14. So more than half or, or almost half of the uh, section one of the 13th amendment is dedicated to that exception clause. How people cannot know about it, I, I don't know. Yeah, in terms of, I mean, if the assignment was about mass incarceration, I would mention mass incarceration one time in my speech and say something like, you know, um, I'm here to speak to you about mass incarceration, which is really a continuation of slavery. And you understand why I say that when we uh, examine the 13th Amendment and then, you know, go into it. Does that make sense? Or you can blame it on us. Blame it on us. You can be like, you know what? Uh, activists in this field say it is modern day slavery. You can blame us. 
Right. Here we talk about mass incarceration, which many activists who have studied the subject call modern day slavery. And they say this because of the 13th Amendment exception clause. So blame us if you don't want to blame yourself. <laughs> All right, I got you. I appreciate that. Um, no yeah, I'm problem. definitely going to include the, that and the 13th Amendment in my uh, thesis statement to start off. So I okay, guess I and I don't know if you uh, follow us either on the BTR community page or on our uh, Facebook page, but I'll put up an article called uh, The Deception of the 13th Amendment, which could give you a lot of good ideas. All right. Uh, is the Facebook page the same as um, the name of the website that you guys are it's on? It's called New Abolitionist Radio, and it's on Facebook, and it's also on btrcommunity.com. All right. I'll definitely um, check that out. No doubt. So, yeah, I'll put it up there before the evening is over. Uh, it'll be there before 1030. All right. I appreciate that. All right. Take care and good luck. And let us know how it turns out. Call us back when you're all done with it. We appreciate hearing it. All right. Yeah, I definitely will. Are you guys um, on every Wednesday? Every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. We usually take calls between 820 and 850. All right. I appreciate that. All right. Scotty, any other callers on the line while we're still uh, here? Um, No one who has unmuted themselves. All right, all right. Uh, okay, then uh, you also want to cover the story, and you, you rightfully, as I do, think that it is huge uh, regarding the Supreme Court decision about immigrants. And uh, this just happened, let me see the date on this thing, is uh, yesterday, 227-18, Okay, uh, I'll read some of the story as we usually do. And this is from The Hill, and it says immigrants can be held by U.S. immigration officials indefinitely without receiving bond hearings, even if they have permanent legal status or hey, are seeking asylum. Hey, Max, before you yes. go into that story, um, so we don't have to chop it off, let's just take a, the break about a minute or two early because we're coming up on, on break. Uh, Christopher, if you're okay. out there and you're listening, uh, give us a call, 704 804 Excuse me, 704-802-5056. That's 704-802-5056. Or anybody that wants to give us a call and ask us uh, any any questions. So, Max, let, let's take an early break so we don't have to, you know what I'm saying, chop up the story. All right. And don't forget to press star star to unmute yourself. Uh, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment. We'll be right back after these messages. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we were just talking about the latest Supreme Court decision, uh, and the article talks about it here in the Hill. I'll start from the beginning again. Immigrants can be held 
by U.S. immigration officials indefinitely without receiving bond hearings, even if they have permanent legal status or are seeking asylum, the Supreme Court ruled Tuesday. In a 5-3 to three ruling, with Justice Elena Kagan recusing, the court ruled that immigrants do not have the right to periodic bond hearings. The ruling is a defeat for immigration advocates who argued that immigrants should not be held for more than six months at a time without such a hearing. The Supreme Court ruling follows a Trump administration appeal of a ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals last year that imposed a rule requiring immigrants held in custody be given a bond hearing every six months, as long as they aren't considered a flight risk or a danger to national security. To impose a rigid six-month rule like the Court of Appeals did is really a mistake. Acting Solicitor General Ian uh, Land Gershengorn said in November of 2016, in its ruling, the court affirmed the right of the government to detain immigrants while it determines whether they should be allowed in the country. Immigration officials are authorized to detain certain aliens in the course of immigration proceedings while they determine whether those aliens may be law lawfully present in the country. Justice Samuel Alito wrote in the majority opinion, <clears throat> the, plead, the lead plaintiff in the class action lawsuit Alejandro Rodriguez is an immigrant with permanent legal status who was convicted of possession of a controlled substance and joyriding. Probably smoking a joint and riding in his car. He was detained by immigration officials for three years without a bond hearing. The ACL took up this case, eventually winning his release and the cancellation of his deportation order. The government appeal was begun under the Obama administration and continued after the president after President Trump took office last year. There you go, Scotty. Yeah, but there was no scandals in the Obama administration <laughs> or so I've been told. But uh yeah, this is um this is crazy. Why would you want to deny anybody a bond hearing? Now obviously we're not talking about people who are suspected of terrorism or anything like that because we know that the NDAA covers that, the National Defense Authorization Act, as well as some executive orders that assert that the federal government, the CEO of USA Inc., the executive branch, can indefinitely detain those. It has been, uh, it has given the label of enemy combatants. So we're not talking about the war on terrorism right now. We're, what we're talking about is an immigration uh, issue. Some might call it the war on immigration. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who 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 are accused of a civil infraction and being and what is that civil infraction of being in the country quote unquote illegally without proper documentation. So that's what we're talking about now. I would think that that you know that wouldn't be treated as serious as somebody who's been accused of terrorism. Like for example, that person uh, Nicholas Cruz who shot up the Parkland uh, High School and killed seventeen people. All right, I don't I, I I don't expect him to have a bond before his trial. But when we're talking about, let's just say, use for an example, and I mentioned this before in the past. Let's say it's one of these dreamers who was brought here as a 10-year-old, and they've been living in the country 
for 10 years and, 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 you know, part of a community working, going to school and all of that. So they get arrested by ICE and then they're taken to a detention facility until their immigration status is sorted out. So in the meantime, so they don't have to stay in jail. And since they have a home, have a family, have friends who care about them, we're going to give them a bond hearing. And if they can make bond, you know, then we'll let them out. And they just have to, you know, promise to come to their immigration uh, hearing. So that's what we're talking about here. And if I understand this correctly, the Supreme Court is saying that, hey, they don't have to give you a bond here. They can just have you in there for indefinitely. Indefinite means forever without ever giving you a bond hearing until your status is determined. Well, we know, I know people who have lost track of their family members in the prison system. So I'm sure that cases get lost in the immigration system and and these people will be sitting in prison for years until somebody, hey, what you doing here? What's your name? What's your case number? I mean, I think it's, it's the perfect recipe for human rights abuses. And it's going to be a boom to the private prison companies because they are the ones the government is contracting with to detain these immigration uh, these people who are on uh, being held over immigration violations, they're going to make, they stay in the game the most by people staying in their prisons longer. Max? Back in 2015, before Trump came along, declaring that he would send up to 3 million immigrants into these detention facilities, those for-profit private prisons we're making $1.9 billion annually to incarcerate uh, illegal immigrants. That was in 2014. 2018 is a completely different beast. And I would su uh, surmise that it is closer to double what they were making in 2014 at this point. It's all about money, man. <laughs> really, like you said before, Scotty, it's capitalism on steroids. Capitalism was really given birth in the way that we know it by slavery and because of slavery. The letter that you read on air from Thomas Jefferson, Scotty, was it Thomas Jefferson uh, talking about his slaves as capital? That was Thomas Jefferson, and yes. Thomas Jefferson, yeah. So, you know, that's where capitalism comes from. So it's all about money. And that, that leads me to the next article that I want to give as an example. And it comes out of the LA Times, and this is from 2016, February 2016, but if two years is a long time ago to you, you are probably 15 or 16 years old because that's the only way two years is a long time. Anyway, it says, a county audit found that the average cost of incarcerating a youth has soared in LA to $233,600 a year significantly higher than other comparable jurisdictions. In Chicago, the annual cost was 204000 a year. Ohio is 200000 a year. San Diego, it's 128000 a year. In Houston, it was 90000 a year. This is what they're charging to incarcerate children across the country in juvenile detention facilities, which are not very much unlike the immigration facilities. It's the same companies often running these 
uh, facilities, immigration, juvenile, prisons, uh, even detainment centers. Our bay was at one time run by the GEO group. Uh, so it really is all about money. And if they're incarcerating teenagers at that cost, and I, I would surmise that based on what I've been reading, that immigrants are somewhere around forty to $60,000 a year to house per immigrant. They don't want to lose that money. That's why I said they're not in the business of freeing anybody. Uh, they want to keep these people in there indefinitely. Like, you, nobody can ever even check and see what's going on. It's, they're lost in the system. If you get on their nerves, you stay 10 years more. That, that's how slavery works. I mean, when you want to enslave someone, you say you have no rights. You'll never get out unless we say you, you can get out. And you have to do everything we say you do. And if you don't do it, we can and will kill your ass. Mm. It's very troubling ruling, man. But again, um, it just pulls back one of those layers of the society that we live in. That we have people on the Supreme Court who think it's perfectly okay to um, say that the U.S. government, the federal government, can lawfully detain people indefinitely. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and it goes against all common common sense about ideals or notions of liberty, freedom, and justice. How is indefinite detention justice? You know? It, 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 it just... It's very sickening, Max. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's... Uh... <laughs> It's a burden, man, to understand the truth of this. But it's a burden that people need to carry. Help us carry someone like, like when I hear people call me from a freaking prison, a man that was on death row, talking about Max, we're organizing this and we're doing that and we're providing a service. And we, uh, I'm mean, like, oh my God, <laughs> we need to hear that because that means change is coming. You guys are doing some damn thing, uh, you know, and, and change is coming. So that, that really, we need that every now and then. And it makes us feel good to report on good news. Uh, no matter how uh, you gain it. Man, Scotty, we got about 10 minutes left or uh, 20 minutes left before we got to get into our other segments. Is there any particular story that you wanted to cover today? Um, no, Max. Uh, I just pretty much let you do your thing. Uh, you set the stories for the night. The only thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to keep talking about it every day, is that uh, NCA. A response to, you know, this former student athlete that, hey, 13th Amendment says slavery was never abolished, and we, the NCAA, is going to claim that as a right to practice slavery against student athletes. That's the only thing I really, you know, that's been on my mind. Although this immigrant story, indefinite detention is very important, too. I hear you on that, Scotty, man. Um look forward to the day when we don't have to convince nobody of nothing anymore. And, and like you said, critical mass, people start really addressing this thing as a crime against humanity instead of legitimizing it by calling it legal actions. Uh, let me give you another story that I want to share today. And this is in regard to 8,000 people who are going to gain their freedom, potentially because of another lab chemist out in Massachusetts who have screwed up their life. And this lab uh, technician apparently was a drug addict herself and was taking the drugs 
out of the testing lab for her own purposes and use. The story comes from MassiveLive.com, and it's out of Boston. Approximately 8,000 uh, 8, drug defendants whose cases were touched by former Amherst State Drug Lab chemist Sonia Farrakh are expected to have their convictions dismissed within a week. Uh, this came out February 22nd. I want to do that quickly, said Massachusetts Supreme Justice Court Justice Frank Gaziano. Gaziano held a hearing Thursday to determine the next step in, the, in Farrakh's case. The former Supreme Court uh, Judicial Court will hear arguments related to the case in May. Advocates for the defendants say they are eager to get the case dismissed. It means they can get housing they're not otherwise eligible for. It means they can get benefits that they're otherwise not eligible for. It means they can get jobs that they keep getting turned away from, says Rebecca Job Jacobstein, an attorney for the Committee for the Council Services, which is the Public Defender's Office. It's important for people in getting back their lives to get these convictions off of their records. Uh, Farrakh was arrested in 2013 for stealing samples from the uh, state drug lab to feed her own addiction. She pled guilty to evidence tampering and drug charges, and district attorneys have agreed to dismiss around 8,000 drug charges, which includes some, most of the cases Farrakh touched. The ACLU uh, says defenders have asked for every case touched by Farrakh to be dismissed. There's more. You can read it on New Abolitionist Radio. But basically, you hear what's happening here. It's the same thing we had with, what was the other woman's name out of Massachusetts? Scotty Reed? Annie uh, Dukin. That Annie Dukin. Annie Dukin was responsible for nearly 60,000 cases. When that came out, we told you this is something that's happening across the country. Yeah, it happened here and in I North Carolina. I did my Carolina. own research. And... Yes? It happened here in North Carolina, Dwayne Deaver. Although, right, right. Although he wasn't, he wasn't messing around with drugs, he was falsifying blood evidence and, and stuff like in murder investigations and just trying to help law enforcement get a conviction. Uh, in one case where they had tested what they thought was blood turned out to be ketchup. He said it was blood anyway in the paperwork, and it was ketchup. I wouldn't be surprised if he was on the payroll, Scotty. The, the incentives are always put there. For people yeah, he's to use gone them. now. With yeah. Annie Dukin's case, it's so she could get extra money. Right, right, uh, right. Incentives, case, yes. Right, right. Bonuses. Right, it was drugs. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I found out that there was 14 states that had that very same incentive that they used in Massachusetts where Annie Dukin went to prison for it. Very same thing across 14 other states. So this is something that's happening all across the country. We're talking about, you know, man, it's, it's more than tens of thousands now. Annie Dukin alone is 60,000. What happened in DeKalb County uh, courtrooms in Georgia was as many as 50,000. And now we're hearing about another eight. 8,000. And this is just the top tip of the iceberg. You could say at some point you could get over 200,000 people who are innocent are in prison because of lab technicians. Crooked ass lab technicians. Let me read this part right here. The full SJC will consider whether district attorneys have to dismiss every case touched by Ferrick or whether they can hold on to a small number of the most serious cases. There are around 40 of these cases. So what I'm reading from that, 
is out of 8,000 cases, only 40 of them are, are considered serious enough that, you know, we don't want to drop these. We want to prosecute. And again, we're talking about nonviolent drug crimes. So, you know, I doubt that the 40 are, are so serious because I don't believe in the drug war. I think as long as you are are dealing with consenting adults and if they won't put something in their body um, and what they put in their body is what they put in their body, whether it's harmful or not. You know what I'm saying? People put a lot of harmful food into their mouth every day. I just don't think we should be putting people in prison for as adults for consuming uh, some drug. But again, 8,000, and they're saying, well, there's only around 40 of them that's serious. And so this, again, is just more evidence to what we say. The vast majority of people who are in prison aren't rapists, aren't robbers, aren't burglars, ain't bank robbers, um, you know, uh, not molesters. They're people who are in prison for possession of drugs, non-violent drug crimes by the thousands. They make up the bulk of it. So that's what I got from that. They It goes on to say there may ultimately be more because the Hamden County District Attorney has not yet decided how to dispose of around 700 superior court cases that were touched by Frank. So what I'm getting here is out of these 80,000, 8,000, I'm sorry, drug cases that she just touched are considered pretty, you know, frivolous, simple. You know what I'm saying? Not real serious, but that makes up the bulk of your caseload. Man, tell you, man. They didn't go into detail on what part of services she provided. Like Annie Dukin was the woman who was testing to see whether or not people's blood and urine tested positive for drugs and alcohol. That was what she was doing. And or or whether a substance money, was... Um, positive results she provided. Or whether a substance was, you know, tested positive for drugs. Right. So I'm, I'm curious as to where she was getting her her fix. You know, I don't think it was just the drugs. I mean, where was the drugs coming from? Was they sending this woman a big bag of powder and say, is this cocaine or flour? And she would go, it's flour and keep it? Is that how it was working? I don't understand. So I, I would like to hear a little bit more about it. But apparently there's 8,000 people who deserve freedom because of it. And, uh, you know, I could stand here and say that I am aware of over 100,000 people in cases like this mm-hmm. who are innocent or for no reason at all do not deserve to be in a prison or a jail because of circumstances like this. Not one or two, over 100,000 of them. Documented. Well, that's the next story. There you go, Scotty. Anything else? No, that's it. Man, it has been a hell of a a hell of a week. And I've been trying to catch up on some of my reading uh, in regards to it. And I ran across something that was interesting, an article that came out of time uh, that talked about how Christian slaveholders used the Bible to justify slavery. You know, we always hear about how they was quoting the Bible to uh, justify slavery. And they give somewhat of a breakdown of this uh, psychosis. Uh, I'll read some of what's in the article out of time, and I want to go straight to the first reference in the Bible and how they warped it. It says, And the sons of Noah that went forth from the ark were Shem, 
Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole world overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backwards and covered their, the nakedness of their father and their faces were backwards and they saw not their father's nakedness and Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him and he said cursed be Canaan a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren and he said blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So, Scotty, that's like the first thing that they used to convince not only themselves, but also the people they were enslaving, that this was the reason that they were slaves. So Matt Turner in his Bible reading, you know, they used to bring him to the different plantations because he was such a wonderful preacher would preach this to his people <laughs> that this is why we are going through this because you know we're- yeah yeah that's been debunked years ago um nowhere from a christian perspective of belief because we're talking about beliefs all right let's be real about what we're talking about um but anyway um that's been debunked even when you read that text nowhere does it say god honored drunken noah's curse and, and this, that, and the other. It's being used to justify racism and everything under the sun. You know, um, it, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And a lot of people also will try to use use these scriptures to bash black Christians and saying, this is what, see, they was using Christianity to make you passive and subservient and all this and that. Um, that's not the case when the black church was the, was the primary uh, base of abolitionists and as you mentioned yeah they was using that Turner to go around and preach specific scripture but he was also you know uh, interpreting it for himself and he got an interpretation that God wanted him to cut the heads off of these evil beings that's enslaving black folks and, and you know the rest is history as they say Denmark VC that black church down there in South Carolina that was burnt down where, you know, the Emmanuel uh, uh, church, you know, it was burnt down because of black Christians practicing abolitionism. So, you know, uh, I, it's it's not something that I spend a whole lot of time debating people about um, because it just simply doesn't interest me. You know, I'm not interested and people saying this is the religion of the master. And so, you know, you just only a Christian cause of what master uh, drilled into your head and, and, and all. I, I'm just not interested. I'm not definitely not interested in hearing from no racist white supremacists about how the Bible justifies slavery. Okay, whatever. Just not interested. For quite, for quite some time. That was with the tool that they used. It was so bad because you know America considered it fancied itself a Christian nation. That was what they were supposed to have been doing to come here to be able to freely worship their God Jesus or however they interpreted whether it be Protestant. Man, most of them or, people weren't uh, Christians. They were just pract. They were just 
practicing rituals, going to church on Sunday. It's the same way today. Probably the majority of people sitting up in the church today is nothing but some of the biggest devils in their community. So, you know, and I, I had this white guy on another radio show tell me, and I asked him, why you go to church? He was talking about how he go to church every Sunday with his wife. And I was like, you know, well, what you know about the Bible? Well, I really don't know nothing about it. I just go to appease my wife. You know what I'm saying? There's a whole bunch of people up in church like that, man. It's just a ritual. And they're not practicing Christians. And then again, people have their own interpretations. And, and people can can read the same thing and come up with all kind of crazy interpretations to fit whatever their agenda is. So when it comes to religion and beliefs and stuff like that, I try to stay out of those debates. Like those Christian organizations that are sending people to chicken factories, right? Coca-Cola right. companies, right? Right. Dare and Care, uh, they, they fancy themselves as Christian organizations, and the Christian organizations working within the uh, international adoption agencies that are literally selling people. You know, I mean, look at the Catholic Church. About. You know, I know right. we're talking about Protestants, but the Catholic Church been practicing slavery and stealing land for since its inception. You know, so, you know, I I don't put a whole lot of debate in that stuff. In this article by Time Magazine, they uh, quote Frederick Douglass, and he said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is to, by necessity, reject the other as bad, corruptive, and wicked. Right. To right. be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Right. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Right. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Right. That's what he said. And that's what the religion of the land at the time yeah. predominantly was. See, black Christians was reading that part about Jesus came to set the captive free. And and about, you know, treat your neighbor the way you want, want to be treated and reaping and sowing and, you know, the actual teachings of Christ. That there is no bond servant, maid servant, no Jew, no Greek, and, and all our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, they, they wasn't preaching that, though. They You know, because that goes again. If, if that's my brother, then I'm not going to enslave my brother if I'm looking at this person as my brother in Christ. You know, if Christ says set the captives free, then I'm not going to be holding people. You see what I'm saying? So, I, you know, yeah. when somebody tell me they're a Christian, I'm like, whatever. Whatever, man. I don't really care. All I care about is your actions and are you an abolitionist and, and you trying to end slavery? You know, pray to God about that, you know. <laughs> well, Scotty, we've only got a couple minutes before we get into our regular scheduled segments. There was a point I did want to make, but before I do so, I'd like to offer anybody that wants to call in or have a comment or question to make. Now would be a good time to do it. Uh, so if you're on the line and you want to be able to say something, just press star star to unmute yourself and then uh, state your name, where you're calling from and your question or comment. All right then. Um, Scotty, one of the things that I, I want to talk about, you know, I, I'm a poet 
and I've been doing this for a long time, but even I am not always able to express my thoughts, particularly some things that I have really been working in my head for a long, long time. One of these things is the confusion that I have uh, listening to some of the advocates that are out there. I read an article just today from Vice.com where they talked about blacks were enslaved well into the 1960s. Um, so they're pretty much in agreement that, you know, the they mentioned in there, I believe, that the sharecropping was seen as slavery, uh, the convict leasing. Uh, and, you know, people will agree. They'll say, you know what, that was slavery. It was slavery by another name, convict leasing. And then when you, uh, they'll talk about how slavery continued after 1865 through, uh, as I mentioned earlier, peonage or uh, mm-hmm. the uh, sharecropping that was going on. Right. But nobody seems to come to an agreement about when all of this slavery actually ended. That's when the cognitive dissonance thing comes back, and they all point back right. to 19, 1865. Like, just a minute ago, you was telling me it continued all the way up to 1960. And they talk about a, a family in Mississippi in the 1960s who had never been informed that slavery ended, and they were generation after generation still freaking slaves what? on a plantation in Mississippi all the way up to 1960. Yeah, I read about that story, but again, when people say slavery ended, ask them how did it end? What ended slavery? Don't tell me the Civil War ended slavery, okay? Point to me to a document, a document that said that slavery is outlawed in this land. If you, what are you talking about when you say slavery ended? You know, explain what, what the end of slavery looks like to you, okay? Po- again, point me to a document, a law, a federal law, a state law, whatever legislation you could point me to that that officially and legally ended slavery. And they won't be able to do it, Max. They'll say the 13th, and then all you got to do is cite the 13th. Oh, but wait a minute. What's this exception clause right here? What does exception mean? Let's look that up in the dictionary. What's the definition of exception clause? Okay? So uh, does it mean making an exception for that, hey, this, that, and the other you can't do, except, you know, if these conditions are met? So... That's what I would say. Well, what does slavery look like to you ending? Well, what do you mean slavery ended? Tell me by which it was ended. Right. That's what I mean. Because, you know, so many stories they tell us about how slavery didn't end in 1865. It continued until, you know, comic leasing or it continued till this point, that point. But they they don't agree, seem to agree that it's never ended like in their mind at some point it it's stopped. a lot of like, even though it went to here it stops eventually yeah, eventually it stopped it's a lot of confusion out there on the issue and purposely so there are different elements out there that want to confuse the issues you know we got these si- si- uh what we call them sovereign citizens you know, we start with a bunch of white supremacists who say that they, the, the federal government has no jurisdiction over them. They won't talk about the 13th Amendment has something to do with European powers wanting war and invade the United States. And, and the 13th Amendment don't say nothing about that. And we've documented the history of the 13th Amendment. And it's always applied to involuntary servitude and slavery on this continent. And the 13th Amendment 
says nothing about England, France, Britain, or, or any European power. It lays out the conditions by which you will be enslaved. But you got some sovereign citizens out there saying the 13th Amendment ain't got nothing to do with slavery. It got to do with the Queen of England and France. And I'm like, man. So it's a lot of confusion out there, Max. And it's out there purposely uh, so that people don't come to the realization. So we never... Or it makes it unlikely that we'll reach critical mass to the point like we saw prior to the Civil War to where so many people will be willing to pick up pick up arms and even give their lives to end slavery. So it's a lot of confusion out there, Max. And that just, what you just explained to me just speaks to that confusion of these people saying, oh, well, it ended in 1960 because this family didn't know slavery was abolished until, well, you know what? That family was actually still living in reality because slavery was never abolished. So they was more correct than you calling yourself correct than them. <laughs> they were living the truth. Most of us is the one living the lie that slavery was abolished. Well, since my brother Christopher Irvin didn't call in, let me read something that he sent out yesterday and uh, or day before yesterday. It says, we all play a role. We play a role in our condition. We play a role in our environment, which in turn creates our condition. I am playing a role in helping people to change their condition and that of their family for the better through my work and career training for those who have records of conviction or other barriers to success. The next step is a work for the larger community, the good of the community. The next step is running for the Baltimore City 41st Legislative District State Central Committee. Your role, I need your support. Volunteer to knock on doors, volunteer to make phone calls, donate $4.10. The 41st District has faced some recent struggles with our representation. It's time for us to play a role. Christopher Irvin for 41st Legislative District State Central Committee. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Please share. So, yeah, I just want to read that for him because, uh, you know, he has always kept abolition at the forefront and has taken it. Uh, to these circles where Congress and senators have sat around and discussed uh, what I, I believe he even coined collateral consequences, right, Scott? If I well, he's the first person I heard use the term. Right, same here. I think he was the one that did coin it, and it was perfect to express what happens to you after you get out of prison. You're still paying collateral consequences, and it goes way beyond your own life. It affects all of your family members. Right. Well, that's as much as we can cover in our stories today. If you want to find these stories like the South Carolina governor candidate who says she's unaware her ancestors owned dozens of slaves, and uh, she says that the South didn't secede and they did, her family didn't fight for slavery, but her family owned 66 slaves. I did the math. 66 slaves at an average of $20,000 a year in today's currency would be about $1.8 million a year. You can damn sure bet you her family was fighting for that $1.8 million a year. Yeah, they, they, will, they will be considered wealthy with that many because most people, yes. yeah, the vast majority of people did not enslave anyone, although they was benefiting from slavery, whether they got a job on a plantation as an overseer and a rapist, you know, but the people who actually uh, enslaved Af it wasn't that many it was only like for example here in Gaston County it was only 12 families and you know at the most they might have had I think the largest uh, uh, group of victims was like 8 in this county 
So if you got 66, I'm like, man, you running like, like you know, you, you got a huge plantation right there. You really making some serious money off the back of that unpaid labor. 66? Yeah, 66 unpaid laborers. That's a lot of damn money and power. And you could damn sure bet her family was fighting to keep that money and power. And you don't get to keep the money and power without the 66 slaves. Well, she still got access to that money. She living off of it now. That's why she in power now. And uh, just real quickly, the last thing I want to make note of so you can look through our archives is people have been talking a lot about what Australia did with uh, taking the guns away from the people. But, you know, today that's reflected in the Aboriginals, black Aboriginals of Australia representing what is really slavery and human trafficking. They only represent 3% of the total population, but right now they're 28% of Australia's prison population and growing. And this is happening all across the globe. So check out that. All right. With that being said, uh, I guess we want to start with our rider of the 21st century. Well, we need to take our break. We need to take take a break. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will do our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on Black Talk Radio Network with Scotty Reed and Max Partners. We'll be right back after this. Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Today, our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Malcolm Alexander, who wrongfully served nearly 38 years for rape that DNA evidence proves he didn't commit. In January of 2018, a district court judge dismissed the indictment and ordered his release. I'm going to read some of the story that comes from the innocentproject.org. Uh, make sure you check them out. They are at the forefront of freeing people who are literally enslaved. Uh, do what you can to support them. I know our former host here, uh, Brother Johanna Elia, is in the uh, Innocence Projects uh, marathon, or a running marathon that they're going to do to raise money in order to help them continue their work. The stakes in this case couldn't have been higher for Mr. Alexander, who faced a mandatory sentence of life without parole, yet the attorney that he entrusted with his life did, did next to nothing to defend him, said Vanessa Potkin, post-conviction litigation director at the Innocence Project, which is 
affiliated with Cordozo School of Law. It is simply unconscionable. Mr. Alexander was just 21 years old when he was convicted after a trial that began and ended all in the same day. We know there are many more innocent people in prison today because their lawyers did not provide effective representation or did not have the resources to put on an adequate defense. Without effective defense counsel, our system is nothing more than a conviction mill. See, they use that as a metaphor, but that is exactly what is happening. Our system is nothing more than a conviction mill. Alexander has always maintained his innocence of the November 8th, 79 rape of the owner of a new antique store on Whitney Avenue in Gretna, Louisiana. The victim, who was white, was grabbed from behind in an empty store by a black man and taken to a small, dark, private bathroom in the back of the store where she was raped from behind with a gun to her head. In February of 1980, Alexander, who was black, had a consensual encounter with a white woman who asked him for money and then later accused him of sexual assault. This encounter which was uncorroborated and later dropped by the police, prompted police to place Alexander's photo in a photo array that was shown to the victim over four months after she was attacked at gunpoint by a complete stranger. The assailant was behind the victim for the entirety of the crime, and her opportunity to view him was extremely limited. According to the police reports, the victim tentatively selected Alexander's photo. Reach her search has shown that multiple identification procedures can contaminate a witness's memory, causing a witness to become confused whether he or she recognized the person from the event or the earlier procedure while also making the witness more confident in his or her identification. Yet, police conducted a physical lineup three days later that included Alexander. Alexander was the only person from the photo array who was shown again to the victim in the physical lineup. The lead detective on the case was not available to conduct the lineup, so another detective conducted the procedure. According to the report of the lineup, this, the victim made a possible identification, and the word tentative was written next to Alexander's lineup number. However, when the original detective returned later that day and took a statement from the victim, the victim's confidence was recorded at 98% sure that Alexander was the assailant. And by the time she got to trial, she testified that she had no doubt that he was the assailant. Blood type testing of the rape kit was available at the time that could have either supported the victim's identification or proven that Alexander wasn't the perpetrator but was never sought. There's more to the story, but pretty much it ends with they finally did the test of the kit and the DNA did not match Alexander. And with that happening, after 38 years, he was freed for a rape that he never committed. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say, welcome to freedom, brother. Yeah, welcome to freedom. Did he get reparations? Uh, there is nothing in there where they're discussing anything about reparations. Uh, I believe state to state has their own uh, way of paying things out. And we've talked about different states on a number of times. And on more than a few occasions, we've seen brothers get out after 30, 40 years and die within two or three years, never receiving a dime, right. living in poverty. Uh, with their families. So there you have it, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. Um, Scotty, if you'd like to do the abolitionist in profile or... Yes, I got uh, the profile. Sake. I got right, the profile right. and then we'll close it out with freedom's sake. All right, so our abolitionist in profile tonight is Phyllis Wheatley. 
Um, she is probably one of the more recognizable names, especially when you're talking about black history uh, as a, a, a poet and a writer. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley uh, was born sometime around 1753 in West Africa. Some people believe that it might have been Senegal uh, where she was born or Gambia. Uh, but she was born in West Africa. She was so into slavery by her one of the tribal chieftains, one of her own people, sold her into slavery to a visiting uh, European who was coming through there. All right, so she, uh, after she was sold into slavery at the age of seven or eight years old, she was transported to North America, where she was purchased by the Wheatley family of Boston. Now, the Wheatley family taught her to read and write and encouraged her poetry when they saw that she had that talent. Now, this Wheatley family was described as being progressive. But I'm like, how progressive can you be uh, when you purchasing human beings as your unpaid labor? All right, yeah, you, you gave her an education and all that good stuff, but you ain't too progressive when you're practicing slavery in the first place. So I just wanted to add that. Uh, but she was, again educated by this family taught, who taught her how to read, encouraged her poetry when she saw that she had talent. The publication of her poems on various subjects, religious and moral, 1773, brought her fame, but it didn't bring her fortune. It brought her fame in both England and the American colonies. Um, racist slavers such as George Washington even noticed and praised her work. Now, during Wheatley's visit to England with her enslaver son, uh, African-American poet Jupiter Hammond praised her work in his own poem. Wheatley was finally emancipated shortly after the publication of her book. She married around 1778. Now, two of her children died as infants, and after her husband was in prison for debt in 1784, as we was talking about earlier, debtors prisons with these judges and prosecutors and courts acting like, you know, uh, 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 debt collectors for these debt collection agencies and throwing people in jail over debt. Her husband was in prison for debt. Again, this is supposed to be outlawed in, uh, in this country. But after he was in prison, she fell into poverty and died of illness quickly followed by the death of her surviving uh, infant. Uh, part of her, her legacy, Max, from what I'm reading, I'm just not seeing anything on, on abolitionism. So if, if there's anything you came across and would like to share. Yes, she was considered one of the forebears of the abolitionist movement. Uh, in her writings. The abolitionist movement had not come into uh, the powers that you've seen it during the later 1800s. So when she was writing poetry, there was nobody speaking out in the way that she was doing it on a public stance. She was the first black person to publish a book of poetry, which was widely read, and uh, the second woman to do so at the time. So she was breaking ground by even expressing any kind of understanding of what she was calling uh, tyrants at that time, which later on everybody you know began to adopt the abolitionist movement. But her poetry 
really spoke to all of those circumstances from the perspective of a person who had been sold into slavery and yearned for freedom. And she explains in her poetry that the reason that I yearn for freedom is because I have been enslaved. Well, no so abolition... Lot, Go ahead, Max. Yeah, a lot of historians consider her a forebear of the abolitionist movement in her writings. Well, New Abolitionist Radio salutes Phyllis Wheatley. Salute, <laughs> indeed. Man. Well, we still got a couple of minutes, and uh, I don't know, we, we have like three minutes towards the end. There was something I did want to read. Is there anything that you wanted to uh, uh, close with or speak about? Uh, we still got last the... Last day of Black we, History Month we across still, the country? We, I practice Black History 24-7. I'm reading about Black <laughs> History, so... Um, but we still had a last segment. We do have what, what we got left. Oh, the indenture uh, for freedom's sake. I I'm, I read it while you uh, a little earlier and thinking I did it. My bad, Scotty. All right. See, <laughs> leave it to Max. All right. This week in our segment for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion, we remember one of the forgotten landmarks of the civil rights history. It occurred 355 years ago, Sunday, September 1st, 1663. This day marks the first recorded instance of African slaves and European indentured servants standing together for justice against the ruling elite. The Gloucester County conspiracy took place at a time when Virginia tobacco growers relied on both slaves and indentured servants to farm tobacco management and uh, to farm tobacco and management treated their workers with cruel abandon regardless of color. I was a little bit taken aback by the word management. Okay, is that what you call them now? Unwilling to accept their fate, a group of black and white workers met in secret to plan a revolt. After securing the weapons and a drum, they would march from house to house until they reached the mansion of royal governor Sir William Berkeley. They would demand their freedom and resort to force if necessary. Though the plot failed, the landowners recognized the power of the Gloucester rebels possessed when banded together over the next Several decades, they sought to breed racial content between the white and black members of the underclass. On the plantation level, they gave whites nominal control in the field. On the colony level, they allowed whites to join the militia and carry firearms. As historian Edmund Morgan writes, the landowners use racism as a device for control. Uh, you can find the full story behind that at New Abolitionist Radio, and we just like to say here at New Abolitionist Radio, we remember the indentured servants plot of 1663. Scotty, I'd just like to add to that story. Uh, the reason it failed is because one of the servants ratted them out, and he got 500 pounds of tobacco for doing that. Mm. And for decades later, people suffered. And because of this man and his 500 pounds of tobacco. Greed, man. Greed. Mm -mm -mm. Yes. That's what happened uh, out in Charleston as well with Denmark Vesey. It's always somebody in the group that goes and tells the enslavers, guess what those slaves is going to do to you, Massa? <laughs> what you going to give me for it? All right, Scotty, we're coming to the close of our program here. As I said, I did want to read something. I think we might have a couple minutes left for it. Was it anything? 
that you want to cover before the end of the broadcast? No, <laughs> it's too late for me to cover anything. Um, I will state my final comments, or are we going into final comments yet? Uh, yeah, I, my final comments going to take about three minutes. That's what I was All saying. Right. Well, my final comments are slavery was never abolished. I don't know how many stories we got to bring to you. I don't know how many stories specifically mention the 13th Amendment in the context that slavery was never abolished. You got to hear about before you decide that you want to do something about it and become a modern day abolitionist so we can bring it in to this evil institution that has been alive for quite too long and we need to snuff it out. So I just hope that um, some of these stories tonight inspired you or enlightened you to the fact that slavery was never abolished and the fact that there is a modern abolitionist movement. And I hope that you will join us and get in where you fit in. Amen to that, Scotty. Um, I wrote an article today. Um, I'm trying to get it published in a couple of places, but I just wanted to make my opinion known about what's going on with this call for uh, teachers to be armed. Uh, as a parent and grandfather, I think it concerns me greatly. I've got quite a few grandchildren, and it does concern me that they are calling for teachers to be armed. So let me read this, if you don't mind. I do a lot of reviewing of news reports and articles, particularly those with a connection to modern slavery. I've read some really nasty reports on teachers, especially white racist teachers. The things they make our kids endure is horrifying. There are more of them than you would imagine. Only 2% of teachers nationwide are black and male. 82% of teachers are white, down from 83% nine years ago. There's always that common denominator in institutions rife with racism so deadly it destroys entire communities and leads children into a near mathematical certainty of imprisonment called the school to prison pipeline these institutions are majority white dominated and they have been for decades if not centuries we just see the same issue in the justice system at every turn but especially in our national prosecutorial pool which is represented by a 95 percent white population 83 percent of which are white men prosecuting a majority of people of color every day i shouldn't even have to say prosecuting because it never goes that far no one goes to court despite the sixth amendment right when 95% of all cases end in a plea bargain deal. I'm saying all of this because if you arm all these white teachers who systemically make our children's lives miserable and start in preschool using their preconditioned racist ideas and their teaching habits, you might as well take responsibility for the deaths to come. I don't want any teachers armed. This will end badly. I've seen it. I know it. It happens. The sagging pants laws weren't even a year old in Louisiana, and Irvin Leon Edwards was dead at 38 years old because of it, murdered by police over his pants hanging low. Right now in South Carolina, they're trying to enact the same law, which has been proven to be unconstitutional already. Today, February 28, 2018, a teacher named Randall Davidson in Dalton, Georgia, fired a gun in school after barricading himself in a room. There are videos of the children charging out of that school in terror, scared for their lives because a teacher facing no threat fired a gun in school. It's only going to be a matter of time before a couple of young blood brothers or best friends in a high school classroom together intimidate some punk-ass white man afraid of a black planet into drawing and firing. 
or simply for a kid having a BB gun in school or a water gun. Then after that, the deaths will get younger as desensitization entrenches itself. In less than a decade, some old white teacher will be explaining to Anderson Cooper how the little angry black four-year-old held what she thought was a big knife and it will be all your freaking fault. You and your goddamn good intentions without a good understanding. I'll probably be among the first people to share the news when it happens. I sound angry, right? Well, let me tell you why in a nutshell. You... Mm, no damn well schools and minority communities don't have enough books, but you want to spend money on bringing in guns? Lord, remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Peace, Scotty. Rise up, 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 just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When Sam